Hello, my name is Shireen Jordan and welcome to Tea and Tonic. This podcast is about giving my guests from all different creative industries the chance to tell us about how they got to where they are today, while we both sip a tea or perhaps something a bit stronger with a tonic. It's a chance for those affected by the impact of lockdown, the opportunity to chat, because talking is, as the saying goes, just the tonic. I hope you enjoy it with a beverage in hand. It's Sunday, November the 1st, 2020, and my guest today is actor and principal coach at London Speech Workshop, Jamie Chapman. Jamie's foray into theatre started young, aged seven, in the King and I at Weymouth Pavilion. His love for getting a laugh and being on stage was ignited then, and he joined the youth workshop group at Weymouth Operatic Society, known as WOW, aged eight. Whilst Jamie was studying politics at Exeter University, he took external exams with Lambda and Speech and Drama, and that was followed by a two-year scholarship at Bristol Old Vic. Jamie trod the boards in rep in Chester and in theatre around the UK. His TV break was playing Brains in Ricky Gervais's Extras. That was followed by parts in The Crown, Series 3, Holby, Red Dwarf, Nativity the Musical and Movie Nativity Rocks. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Jamie Chapman. Hello! Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I struggle on, but I never complain, which I think is a lovely trait. I do admire me in these tough times. Staunch is the word, staunch. Jamie, um, before we chat about um, you, what beverage do you have? My beverage of choice. Well, I have two beverages. I have my very large mug of tea. I'm a big, big, big fan of tea. And then should the chat become very probing and I should need a strengthening of spirit I also have my little Harvey's Bristol cream here just in case I need a bit of strength for some of the very probing questions so I've sort of given myself options here do I need alcoholic non-alcoholic I, I love that I'm full of admiration for you yeah it's up here for thinking down there for dancing yeah. you well, I feel very left out, um, and though I haven't, I, as though I haven't thought this through properly at all. But I've got um, a green tea in my owl mug. Um, well, I wish I could like green tea. I I feel so angry with myself because I never like things that are good for me. You know, enough. There is no food substance or drink that cannot be improved by adding sugar and fat, as far as I'm concerned. But I do love tea. I'm sure there was life before tea, but it cannot have amounted to much. That is my view. No, well, my green tea is flavoured, actually, with Ooh. mango and coconut. So, Oh, fair dues. Yeah. Well, um, cheers. <laughs> Jamie, when I was going through your biog and your showreel, um, I was mainly laughing um, because of all the brilliant acting and, and comedy that you've done. Going way back, did you know at school that this was the path you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I absolutely did, and very early on too. My mother was and is the grand dame of the Weymouth Operatic Society. So, oh, absolutely. I mean, she's a force to be reckoned with down there. And I was hooked into a production of The King and I in 1983 at the Weymouth Pavilion. And I was one of the Siamese children, you know, in the bit where they process on and you have to bow to the king and you have mm-hmm. to kiss Miss Susanna's hands. And I was given a bit of comedy business to do with a sticky sweep whereby I had to take it out of my mouth very slowly and put it behind my back. And I always remember the Monday night, because it always opened on a Monday night then at the Pav. I can remember being there and thinking, oh, I'm seven at the time. If I take this out very slowly and put it behind my back, and then I look away and then I look out front, I'm going to get a big laugh. And then I did. Now, I don't know why I knew that, but I did know that, an instinct. And I fell in love with it from that moment. That was it. I loved it. So you were pretty switched on as a child then to gauge that, you know, that would get you a laugh. and and, and... Oh, oh, Yeah, there, there's a sort of instinct about that. Of course, the other word for that would be precocious is the <laughs> other word. But I, I absolutely <laughs> loved it. I mean, literally, they couldn't get me off. They had to keep the orchestra were vamping just to get this brat off the stage. And I swear there's still a lot of that in me now. I'm still age seven, really, in The King and I. So did you grow up in, in good old Dorset then, you know, because I live on the South Coast and it's a part of the oh, world I, I love. love. it. Yeah, I did. I was so fortunate, really. I grew up about two minutes from the sea and oh. always we used to have every summer. Because we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't really go away on holidays. 
But of course, we lived in Weymouth, which is a, a holiday resort. And I remember people would come down from Yorkshire and Birmingham for their bit of sun, their little holiday. And I remember you'd, you'd speak to some of the, the kids who were on holiday and you think, oh my God, we have this all the time. You know, they're, they're literally flipping because they're seeing the sea. And I see it all the time. So yeah, I loved it. I was so fortunate. So being that your mother was held in very high esteem, <laughs> was that something then that she encouraged for you to follow her footsteps in? Well, she didn't even really need to. I mean, I did not need a pushy stage mum. I was quite pushy enough for the both of us. <laughs> and I was very, very fortunate in that they had a youth group for the local operatic society, which is called, I dubbed this thing, WOW, Weymouth Operatic Workshop. And I was, though I say it shouldn't, a bit of a leading light of wow. I, my Bugsy Malone was much admired. And uh, so I, I was literally from that age of about seven. I lied to get into the youth group. I was quite tall and I was eight. And I said I was 10. And so up until the age of 14, I had two birthdays. Because I'd said I was born in May and actually November. So, I mean, I lied like a trooper to get onto that stage and to the chorus of Oklahoma, I tell you. You're my idol. You were switched on how the business worked at a young, young age. I was. I was like a little mini Mama Rose on my own behalf. <laughs> Sing out, Louise. Well, then you decided to pursue this further. You got a place at the Bristol Old Vic, which must have felt amazing to... It was absolutely wonderful, but I didn't go straight there. What I did, actually, I was, I was quite clever about it because I, I liked doing academic work too. And I actually went to university first doing an academic subject. I actually did politics, single honours at Exeter. And while I was there, I also, I knew I wanted to act as well. While I was there, I remember dreaming that I was being elected MP for the constituency of Bristol Northwest. And instead of being delighted about this in my dream, and why Bristol Northwest? I don't know. I remember being livid because I thought, oh my God, I can't do plays for five years. And so that sort of made up my mind for me. That was no way I was going to go into politics. But then having realised that, I then, while I was at Exeter, did external exams with Lambda right up to teacher level in terms of doing teaching of speech and also drama because it's an officially recognized the licentiate qualification and only once I had that knowing that I'd need something to fall back on that could dovetail with acting mm -hmm. only then to, once I finished university did I audition at Bristol okay. and I was fortunate because I would never have been able to afford really to do two years but I got a scholarship so that was why I ended up then going on to Bristol. That's amazing so you know you persisted with your degree saw it through, got your Lambda qualifications. What was it like getting a place? Do you know what? I can tell you exactly what it was like. My grandma, who was really my best chum, she always was my best chum. She died two years ago at the grand old age of 97. And she left me, in her will, all her diaries. So decades and decades of journals. Every day, she kept it every day. And so I can read me growing up, the, the right, I mean, it's the most amazing gift from the most amazing person. I mean, she really was a, an absolute star, a wonderful, wonderful, magical grandma. And I can, I can, I can tell you the day when I found out, because I was reading it the other day on a very sort of rainy, mopey lockdown Sunday. And I read it and it was on June the 10th, Thursday, June the 10th, 1999. When I got the letter, I'd already been offered a place by the Bristol Old Vic, but I'd had to turn it down because I couldn't afford it. And so I'd had to say, I'm terribly sorry, I can't afford to go. Two years, I could never afford the fees because you never got a, a grant from Dorset ever. And then they wrote back and said, well, in that case, we'll give you a scholarship. And I opened it and I can, it's the whole description of the, there, uh, the scream from upstairs and me running down. And I, that's in my head. It's just the most wonderful, magical day. So, yeah, that, that was how I felt when I found out I was beside myself. God. And do you remember the audition for Bristol Old Vic? I do. I really do. And it was after there was a school called Webber Douglas. And I'd done mm. an audition there the week before. And oh, it had been awful. You know, when you're dying on your posterior, <laughs> they're just not getting it. You've chosen the wrong piece. This mm -hmm. is not working. It was awful. 
But anyway, then I changed the piece and I thought, right, okay, off to Bristol. And I went in then, Bristol, and it's this gorgeous old sort of Regency, I think, building, white stucco fronted. And I went in, slightly ramshackle, but hugely somehow, oh, there was an aura about the place. I loved it. And I thought, I like it here. I want to come here. And then I went in and I did my initial audition. You do your Shakespeare speech, you do your modern speech, and you have to sing a bit of a song. And I liked them. I don't know why. I just thought, I can be here I like it. And then I got a recall and you go for a whole weekend. They're brilliant at Bristol. They don't just do it on a you reading something for them or you doing a piece. They then, once they've decided they're interested, get you in for an entire weekend workshop. So by then, of course, the nerves dissipate. You're just getting on with the workshop and they can really see what you can do. And it was after that I was offered the place and then the scholarship. So yeah, I I loved Bristol. I really did. And did it feel even more special Jamie because you know you've done your degree so you were that little bit older you know I'm guessing you were in your early 20s and really ready to to throw yourself into those two years. It really did I think you know so much of acting is a bit of experience life experience you draw on it all the time and I think actually the more life experience you have the better and actually I think you probably I'm not saying this is true for everyone but certainly true for me you get more from drama school if you've got something to draw on something to bring it bring to it to that experience but I had a wonderful time there it was really I was lucky 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 because it was sort of square hole square peg I I fitted in there Mm. I liked it so you came out of uh, Bristol Old Vic and what was the plan did you have a plan was it right audition time was it try and get an agent move back to Weymouth, move to London, stay in Bristol? Well, I stayed in Bristol for a bit and I'd got an agent, a London agent from the showcase. And then what happened after that is, I mean, I never try and plan too much because, you know, the the whole point is the way to ensure something else happens is make a plan for the opposite, just Mm -hmm. so I didn't. But I just wanted to work. I just wanted to work. And I think also for me, I was aware that I was so obviously a character actor Mm -hmm. And therefore, the people who tend to immediately zoom off into huge things tend to be the ingenues, the ones who look absolutely fabulous, very young. They're going to play very young parts. Mm-hmm. They're the one in that sense, that's their moment. And I was aware, well, maybe I'll have a tricky time. And I was fortunate, really, in that I, I worked steadily, even then, even though I was quite an odd cast as a young child. I mean, I was born age 43. It always amazes me I didn't emerge from the womb with spectacles on my nose and my cardigan buttoned to the hilt. But nevertheless, I still sort of found enough of these quirky, engaging parts. And I went off really into regional rep Mm -hmm. and did a lot of that work. So my very first job was with an amazing director called Sue Wilson at at the theatre then, it was called The Chester Gateway. And I did a play called Breaking the Code there. And then very soon after that, I got a job at the Pidlockery Festival Mm -hmm. Theatre. I don't know if you know about Pidlockery, but it's seven and a half months and you go up there in repertoire. I mean, it's miles away. No one really sees it, but you're with very experienced people doing a number of different plays. I mean, it's that perfect place to learn. So I had a wonderful time there too. And that was, again, a nice, lucky little, I've just happened to be in the right place at the right moment. And do you think there is a lot of that in this industry? Right place, right time, luck? It's hugely important. Yeah, I mean, you can be the most talented person ever, but if they haven't seen you, then they don't know you exist. And so much of it is about getting in the room. So much of it's about that. And, you know, you, but you can't, in a way, you can try and put yourself out there as much as you possibly can, but that you do need that little bit of luck. Someone who sees something in you and, and is in a position to do something about it. And Jamie, did you feel that your lambda qualifications that you had was that reassuring knowing that you had that to fall back on if you needed to yeah I mean the thing is if if anybody's listening to this who's thinking about becoming an actor my advice would be this know what your other career is as well so for me it was always teaching whether that be teaching communication or accent you have something else as well and particularly if you want to do telly work because for telly you're not in long 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 runs in the theatre which take you up for months and that's all you do often you're called in for a week here a day here two weeks there as you do tv jobs so actually you need other things to do and another source of income Mm. 
mm. as you also sort of plough your furrow, as it were, in the, th- in the TV industry. So you actually do need to have that. And here's my tip as well. When I first went out, I tempt. Now, I was a rubbish temp because I am technologically illiterate. And so I was the worst temp in history, really. But I do believe that temping rots the brain faster than heroin. I absolutely loathe it. I can't be doing with it at all. So doing something, I don't think getting a job in the theatre or on TV should feel like you're escaping from your life. Mm -hmm. You have to like your life. You have to go, actually, this is nice. This, I enjoy what I'm doing. So when I'm teaching at London Speech Workshop, which is the company I work for as well, I think, yeah, I'm doing some good here. I'm helping someone get a job they wouldn't otherwise get. Mm-hmm. While at the same time being an actor, which is the, what feeds my soul. And that's so important. Otherwise, it, it all goes wrong, I think. You sound very wise, Jamie. Oh, I will. <laughs> Going along your kind of career then, was it a steep learning curve at times? You know, were there highs and lows and, and pitfalls and, and wonderful oh, elation? Yeah. yeah, it is. It really is. And I think the thing is, when people say you have to be very strong to be an actor. I don't know that you do, because I'm not strong really about, about it. You have to learn to take rejection mm. again and again and to go, oh, I really hoped for that and I didn't get it. But what you have to be is absolutely strong-willed. I want to do this, I'm in it for the long haul, and I will stick at this. And also, you you learn all the time. You learn all the time. I think if you ever stop learning, just stop. Mm. Stop doing it. So you did your seven months um, in rep, and, and, and then what happened? Because I know that you've done quite a lot of telly. I'm very familiar with you in a number of things that we will talk about. And I know that you did a little stint in EastEnders back in 2004. So how did that come about? Well, I mean, just before I got to that, I was also doing, a, again, after Pit Lockery, I met, this is what I, we were saying about how you do one job and it opens the door to others. I worked with a terrific theatre director called Richard Barron. And then I worked with him. He then took me to the Nottingham Playhouse and oh, all over. And then I did lots and lots of work with him for a number of years. And then I got the first telly one. And my first big telly, I'd done little bits, Mm -hmm. was extras. And the reason being, it's really hard to crack into telly because often you'll be there, oh, he's a theatre actor, he's a TV actor. Mm -hmm. But if you remember extras in series two, they had the sitcom within the sitcom. Do you remember when Ricky Gervais was doing Are You Having a Laugh? Yes. And so for the people in the sitcom because they were all the celebrities coming in you really needed to have people who weren't knowns on telly because otherwise it sort of doesn't work if, mm-hmm. if you think that you're such and such i've seen you in such and such you had to have unknowns and so they really cast the net wide and i remember i did the audition actually this is so typical exactly what i'm saying about plans I'd not been on holiday for years. And then I went off to France, rural France, first time in years. And I'd already done the casting for extras. And I thought, well, I've not heard anything. And so I I popped on off. Of course, you get there, you're there. And then your agent's on the phone saying they want to see you again. And I remember thinking, I can't, I'm in the middle of rural France. (laughs) I can't get back. So I said, I can't come back for two days time. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh my God, what have you done? What have you done? And after I'd said that, and then my agent rang back and she said, they'll see you when you get back. And I thought, oh, oh, that sounds quite, they'll see you when you get back from holiday. And I went straight back, rushed up to London from Southampton Airport, because that's where we got into. I rushed up to London and I saw them and got... All the, you know when you think I think I've been offered this in the meeting with mm-hmm. st- uh, the amazing Ricky Chavez merchant. <gasps> I mean they're just amazing, and I thought, oh, I don't. But I, you know, you can't, almost don't, don't dare to believe it. And I went home, and I remember I just, I'll tell you the whole story. I was at home and I put the radio on, thinking, don't think about the audition, don't think about it. You know, the worst thing is to think about it, and. I remember I got the call and what was on the radio as I got the call to say you've got the part, a regular role in extras, was the Beatles. Here comes the sun. And now, whenever I get a nice part, I immediately play that song. It's my getting a part. Mm. 
<laughs> so, Jamie, you did the two auditions for extras and yeah. in front of Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. The second one, yeah. How nerve-wracking was that? Well, you know, funnily enough with it, I've, I've really believed this in terms of nerves. I, I try never to be in awe of people, however brilliant. Mm-hmm. I respect them like mad. But if you're in awe of people, you can't actually do your thing. You can't yeah. give them your best. So you go, I'm not going to be in awe, although I respect you like mad, <laughs> but I'm just going to give the very best one I can give. And actually, that's the same principle as any opening night you'll ever do. You go, okay, this is quite important, but what I'm going to do is just do this thing, this acting thing that I love to do as best as I can in this moment. And that's really all you can do with nerves, I think. And I suppose almost forget they're there in a way, because if you're performing in your truest sense, you would perform it whether you have 10 people in the room, a thousand or nobody. Am I right in saying that? You're just literally there and you're saying, I'm not going to think about how important this is. I'm just going to think about this character delivering this line. And I know really that what you want in this is to know, can I time this just right? Mm -hmm. And I can, and I'm going to do it. And that's it. And you just get yourself psyched up. But here's the thing. This is the other, my little top tip for nerves. For nerves for me, absolutely don't do that. Oh my God, I've got to go in the room or I've got to go on stage. Absolutely fight that. Almost make yourself impatient. Go, come on, let me in. Let me do it. Let me do it. I want to show you what I can do. Come on, let me go in now. And then actually somehow then that feels like I want to be in here and I want to do this as opposed to, (gasps) which which is the wrong feeling. So this was your big break, wasn't it? For for telly anyway, because... You couldn't really ask at the time for a bigger show. No, no, you really couldn't. I mean, it was a wonderful calling card and it sort of always has been because it was such an iconic show. I mean, it won a couple of Emmys. And I was actually the very, very first person he ever said, are you having a laugh to? (laughs) And that, that still, you know, that, oh, it was wonderful. It It was such a charmed show to work on. They are just amazing. And... Yeah, oh, it was wonderful getting to work with the amazing Lisa Tarbuck, who's the loveliest person ever, and Sarah Moyle, who's so funny, and all the celebrities who came in. It was just a dream. It was a dreamer. And so, and again, lucky break, right place, right time. I was what they were looking for. And again, with that, I remember it was just reading it, and you think, oh, I think I know the voice. Me and Sarah Grog, my friend at drama school at Bristol, and she came from Marple, just outside Manchester. We used to have our little comedy voice that we used to do, which is called Northern Posh. So it's not actual full-on Northern, but it's like Northern Posh, you know, so Posh Stop Northern, this sort of thing. And I thought, when I read the script, I thought, oh, I'm going to do him in that. And that just happened to turn into be, to be what they really wanted. So there's all sorts of things get stored away in your brain, I think, as to, oh, I'm going to use that, I think. Jamie, your comedy timing is brilliant. And I, I'm not just saying that. It really is. It's very clever. It's an, it's an art form in itself. And extras I actually watched at the beginning of lockdown. We re-watched all of it. Because there were so many bits you miss, you know. And it, it's just brilliant. Is comedy your first love in terms of acting and being a character actor? Or, or do you like to flex every acting muscle. Well, I do, but I do love comedy. I tell you what I, I think I find is that I find comedy the most instinctive one. It's comedy is the one I don't have to think about. I, I can hear, and it's interesting, this, I remember, again, at Bristol, I remember a brilliant actress. I mean, she was good. I mean, she was amazing. She could cry to order. And I remember she was then in one of the plays. And I suddenly realised that she didn't know how to get a laugh at the end of a line. And and I thought, oh, how interesting. She's clearly brilliant. She's got every acting instinct, but absolutely no idea how, if you need to get a laugh at that moment, how to get it. And I suppose the thing we admire in others is the thing we can't do ourselves, because you just go, how are you doing that? It's amazing that you can just burst into tears to order at that moment. Whereas if you then go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're getting the laugh like that. I understand exactly how you do that. Because you know that's no mystery to you. Absolutely. And, and I think vice versa. The thing we just go, how are you doing that? Is when you think, I, I don't know how to do that. But I think also comedy timing is almost an instinct. It's something you just know or can hear and, and you try and define it. And it's almost impossible. I mean, that's one of the things in The King and I. I don't know why I knew to look away and then look out front. I don't know why I knew that. 
but I did age seven. And so there must be some sort of instinct there as well. Mm. I do think with, with good comedy, with comedy actors, with, with comedians, I don't think that that timing can be taught. I do think, like you're saying, it's instinctive because it, it's so clever. It's why millions of us sit on our sofas to watch shows like Extras so we can just laugh and, and have the belly laugh. That you the funny thing is also about comedies. You can't overthink it. The more you think about comedy, the less funny it becomes. <laughs> Something's just funny because we don't quite why. And often it's just the reaction. It doesn't even need to be the line itself. It can be the look on someone's face when they hear it. Yeah. And, but, but the one thing I always say about it is that comedy, you actually approach comedy in exactly the same way you would anything else in the same way if you were playing tragedy or anything. Mm -hmm. Because you always start, the, the absolute iron rule of acting, I think, is you start with the why. If you know why you're saying something, why you're doing it, if you know what you're thinking at that moment, then everything, the how will just happen. Mm -hmm. So don't even think about the how, always think about the why. And you get the detail in it. That's really good advice, thank you. So you did extras, did that change your life? Is that too dramatic well, a thing to say? I don't feel that I ever believe in something changing one's life. But I think what it did is it, it was a good calling card. So it got me in the room. What I would say about it was I got extras young, really. I mean, I was, what, 30 when I got there? Just 30. And actually a lot of them wanted me because that was quite an, an eccentric character, obviously, brains with the glasses and the bouffant hair. And what they really wanted when I was called in was for me to be a bit older. I think the parts for me, because I was quite eccentric and a character actor, multiplied as I got older. And so even after that, while you think, oh, yeah, I can get in the room a lot more now, there was still a sense about, oh, we want you to be five, ten years older. We just want you to be a bit older for you to be right in your niche casting area. And I suppose in a way that was quite a nice thing. Because rather than thinking time is running out, it was like getting, I'm getting more castable with every passing birthday. Yes. So that was in a sense quite nice. It was the opposite of the ingenue dilemma. Well, yeah. And also probably quite the opposite of what a lot of women experience in oh, that, you know, yeah. as you get older, the roles get fewer and, and it can become harder. Yeah, and that has got to change, hasn't it? Mm. Has oh, it? Yeah, and exactly. the whole thing in society, that has got to shift. Mm. It's got to shift. I mean... Yeah, I, I've no time for it. I mean, I think, it, you know, why is it that it's fine for male presenters to get older and women ones are put out to grass? I don't get it. I no. don't I'm the same. I agree. We could, we could talk about that for hours, but I will park <laughs> it. You've ticked off at this point extras. Then I went straight into the mousetrap for a year. <gasps> then I went off to the mousetrap. So that was lovely. It was so much fun doing that. And I also made my best friend in the whole world doing that called Helen Kirkpatrick and she was playing Miss Casewell and I was playing Christopher Wren in that and oh it was wonderful I was that entire year I was either on stage or in Helen Kirkpatrick's dressing room and I always say she's a bit like my sister Helen she's the best person she's the sort of person I would say you could lay her on an open wound and it would probably heal she's just she makes a nice situation that bit nicer and a bad situation that bit more bearable. She's wonderful. Aww. And was it lovely being back in the theatre again, Jamie? Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I try never to leave the theatre for too long because mm -hmm. I think you could get scared of it. And I think it's a bit like getting on a bike. When you're in a show, you're not scared of it at all. You're just doing the show. And I think it's more that idea of it. So I try not to be out of it for any more than about 18 months. I was then thinking you really ought to go into doing that again. Then what happened, because we still need to talk about, my goodness, Red Dwarf, hello, hello, <laughs> Holby City, Nativity Rocks, and oh. The Crown, which I didn't realise it was you until I realised it was you, if that makes sense. <laughs> also, you did Neville's Island, Hansel and Gretel, loads of things. But let's talk about Nativity Rocks, if I may. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the lovely Debbie Isaacs Nativity Rocks, oh, um, yeah. and you were also in Nativity the Musical. I have no hesitation really in saying it's the most special show in the world to me. It means an enormous amount to me, and and Debbie is an amazing director and writer. I mean, she's a liberation, is what she is. <laughs> the way she works is so different and brilliant. 
And the, I mean, straight away from the auditions, you know, again, it was a bit like meeting Helen Kirkpatrick. I remember just thinking, oh, I like you. I remember being in the audition, this sort of twinkling presence there, this energy sat there. And I remember doing the initial audition and we had to go back and we had to improvise. And actually at drama school, I'd never really liked improvisation. I didn't think it was something they did that well there. But the way Debbie does it is clever. Because you almost, you know, something Debbie does, it's almost impossible not to appear to be natural. Mm -hmm. Because there's no script. There isn't a script. There's, you know what you need to achieve in that. And then a shape emerges and you're really quite strict about the shape of it. So it doesn't become flabby and get Mm -hmm. bigger. But all she's good at then sorting that out. But the words come from you. And it, oh, it's brilliant. And then, so I did the the initial Nativity of the Musical, which is the premiere of it. And then Debbie was doing Nativity Rocks and very kindly she brought me in as a character in that, as a germophobic, evil henchman to the fabulous Craig Greville Horwood. And we had so much fun in that. It was very clever, Jamie, the character that you played in that. I had me in stitches. You, <laughs> you, know, you really are very, very funny. And it looked like a lot of fun as well. Again, the timing was just so key. Oh, thank you. Um, did you, in the end, you find then that improvisation became something that, you know, you took to? Absolutely. And here's the other thing. When it's done well, it's just brilliant. And always, whenever I thought in my career, oh, that sounds scary. That's going to be difficult. I then loved it. And the moral of that story is, why not just give it a try, be open to it, because you might end up loving it. And actually then thinking that the line was always going to sound natural because it was coming from you. You were able to put it in your mouth. That's what Debbie understands and what makes her films brilliant because they're also believable, even though they're really funny and mm. oh, they're, they're terrific. But I no, I absolutely had a ball doing that. And actually that character was loosely based on a character I played in the musical who I did, I developed a Tony, a horrible receptionist in Hollywood. And that's where all this anti-backing came from. The fact he was, I mean, mind you, I'll tell you one thing, he'd survived the pandemic, that character, (laughs) wouldn't he? He'd be all right there. I mean, Tony was one step ahead, I tell you that. And did you enjoy performing it at the Apollo, Hammersmith Apollo in London, and then the, the musical, and then you took it on tour? I've heard wonderful things from so many people um, on this podcast about that experience. Was that something you found joyful yeah, too? I did. It's extraordinary. I mean, the Apollo is an enormous venue. It's enormous. Something like 3,600 people. But weirdly, you just do it. If you did, like I was saying about how it can seem scary thinking about it. I mean, you can look at photographs of that empty auditorium and go, how do you get up and do that? But actually, when you're doing it, you're just doing the show, being the characters, doing the show. So, I mean, what a wonderful thing to do. And, yeah, huge. Was that your first film experience, Jamie? I think think it was the first film, yeah. I'd done quite a bit of telly, but I'd not done a film. And to be able to then join the Nativity family, not just any film, but this extraordinary franchise. I don't even think it's a franchise. It's more now of a genre. Mm of its own. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. so particular and brilliant. So, I mean, what, what a treat. What a, it's a bit of luck. And then when The Crown came calling last year, Series 3, oh, was that <laughs> just the best phone call to get? It was. It was lovely. And I did have to go to a couple of auditions for that. Although even for telly, you know, you only go to two auditions normally. Two, possibly three if it's for a major, major character. But never more than really two. And in the musical theatre, sometimes people have told me stories about coming in for 16. 16? <laughs> you what? I mean, normally in, in, in telly, it'll be one and then tell you if you've got it or not. But they'll be very thorough about it. Because telly's different, I think. Because there, they don't get so many people in. They're, their actual pool, the people they get in, tends to be a bit smaller. And so therefore, that's why. And so you do more in there, but yeah, 16 auditions. But no, I, I did that. And that was, yeah, it was lovely. I went in twice to do read in that. And of course, it, I mean, on <laughs> my part, I was an interviewer interviewing Arthur Scargill in the miners' strike. And so there were all sorts of riots going on in the background. And talk about it not always being that glamorous. It was on the coldest day of 2019. 
and we were outside a factory in Slough and it was jolly cold. And every time, what you don't see is that as soon as they stopped filming, because they had to do it loads of times because of everything going on in the background, they literally came and wrapped you in a blanket and a hot water bottle. But it was, I mean, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't be like crown? I mean, come on. Gosh. And yeah. what is it like when you are filming and you have to do a number of takes? Because obviously, you know, theatre, it's one hit, you know, per show, you hope. Um, but do you mind that? Is Does it become a form that you have to then rethink? Oh, I might do it slightly differently the next time we do it. Oh, I'm going to try and do it identical. Well, I mean, here's the thing about it. It's got pluses and minuses, hasn't it? I mean, the big plus with the, with the TV scene is that you do it and you do it and you do it and you do it. Then you can forget it. That's it. On to the next one. But it, the thing about the number of takes that I was fine is that to begin with, with telly, when I wasn't very experienced at it, it felt like a long technical rehearsal interspersed with moments of it being the opening night where you had to deliver. And so actually you have to stay very focused on the scene throughout that whole period. It's tempting to just go, oh, I'm relaxed. I'm actually got to stay very focused, even though they're lining up shots, because it's your one. But I, I must say, I, I love doing Vincent Holby. Love, what a gorgeous cast. How sweet are those people and talented too. But they working single cam for the scenes I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so you always knew what shot you were in. So I found, I liked that. So here's the wide shot. Now it's Charlie's close up and now it's your close up. Mm-hmm. You knew because actually the only difference between theatre acting and TV acting is projection. Mm-hmm. For theatre, you're trying to get it a long way. It's got to reach people a long way away from you. For telly, if you're in close up, you literally have to get it to the end of your nose. Mm-hmm. It's they're, they're right there. Now, that's not the same as doing nothing when you just see people switch off, because then that's just dull. Mm. But actually, it's just about getting all those thoughts that you almost just think it, and it happens there. Mm. But it, it's a particular thing, and, I, and the more I do it, the more I love it. I have to say, I'm getting more and more used to it. And I, I mean, you never stop learning. You never stop learning. And I was doing a scene in Holby with Charlie Condu. What a good actor. Mm. And do you know what? Acting with a good actor is so easy because they're just so brilliant. And you're just, you're always, you can then, it's like playing good tennis. Not that I've ever played good tennis, but <laughs> that's what it feels like. Your scene with him I saw on your showreel and it is brilliant. You know, <laughs> it's a very different character that you're playing too. And you were saying at the beginning about you being a character actor. I honestly believe that now in the current climate, that is such a strength, Jamie. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, comedy as well. I mean, I was talking about this with a mate the other day and with a real chum. And, and do you know what? During lockdown, the news is so depressing, isn't it? Remember, listening to it last night, you just think, oh, my giddy good God, this is horrendous. And so what do you then turn to YouTube or Netflix? You think, I want something funny. Mm-hmm. I want something that takes me out of this situation I want to be amused and so I I agree I mean I I said this on an interview the other day but very early on in in my career I was in rep you know seaside rep so really back to like Southwell gorgeous but I was there and what you're doing is about a play every two weeks and while you're doing one play in the evening you're rehearsing the next play in the day and learning it somehow overnight god knows how and so I was heading back fairly weary. We'd just been doing a fast, probably something called Oops Vicar, Where's Me Knickers? Who knows? But I'd just been doing that. And you know, you're thinking, let's get back and learn the Agatha Christie. And trudging on back. And a lady approached me and she said, oh, it's such a moment. This. She said, can you come and meet my mum? And I said, yes, of course I will. And I went to meet her mum and she, oh, she looked ill, really, really not well. And she said, I'm dying. But she said, thank you to you and the rest of the cast because that was so funny for two and a half hours I forgot about it and I could manage the pain and it's never left me and I always say what it taught me very early on is that laughter is not insignificant it really isn't we need it we need when the chips are down absolutely oh god more than ever which brings me on to Red Dwarf. <laughs> oh, God. If there were licenses for acting, I just might have lost them. <laughs> I was very, I mean, I, <laughs> what I would say about it is, look, that Red Dwarf 
was the nearest I've come to arriving on a set and screaming <laughs> because I watched Red Dwarf when I was at university. It was the show to watch. Iconic. We also used to pour into the TV room because remember, I'm very old. We didn't have TVs in our city, didn't have the internet. And oh my God, that was so amazing getting that job. I'm flushing thinking about it. But my character was absolutely outrageous. Absolutely outrageous because it was supposed to be in a ship that <laughs> where criticism had been banned. And so everything was ludicrously exaggerated, most of all me. And so, but it was so much fun. What a gift of a part. And I mean, I love the series, but sitting there in this scene, I was wearing an outrageous costume in there. And it's all of a sudden they're going, oh my God, there's him and him and there's Cat and there's Crichton. And it's like a dream. And there's you sat there acting with them. And you think, I wish I could go and whisper in me in 1995 at university and say, you do realise one day you'll be a guest lead in one of those shows. I mean, I was going to say, did you ever think at university, in your wildest dreams, that that would happen, that would be a role that you would take no. on? No, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And also other people. I mean, all of the, I mean, I was, I've been a huge fan of Acorn Antiques and Celia Imrie. I just think she's the most wonderful actress. And then you'll find yourself in Nativity Rocks, popping back in the train with Celia Imrie, having a bottle of wine, having a chat... And you think, pinch me now, because this is someone I've admired for years, like comedy royalty, acting royalty, and the loveliest person. Celia Imrie is a lady, mm. an absolute lady. She is gorgeous. Mm. What a lovely individual. I was lucky enough to interview her probably about 10 years ago now on the Isle of Wight, the Isle of Wight Festival. She had a book out and yeah, she was she very a- lovely full of energy. Yeah. Just the nicest, loveliest, most unspoiled person. When I grow up, I want to be like Celia <laughs> That would be the test. How like Celia are you? And that's how we measure ourselves. <laughs> you should tell her that, Jamie. I know, I should. <laughs> do, do you pass the Celia test? <laughs> it's been a, a, a fabulous run of shows that you've had over the last 20 years theatre telly film is there one that stands out for you was there a standout moment was there a standout show was there a a theatre that you you know always holds a special place in your heart it's so tricky this I can only give you different things for different reasons nativity will always nestle in my heart as this most extraordinary experience I'm like a homing pigeon. I'll always come back to the show. In fact, so far, Touch of Wood has been on 248 times. That show has been on. And I've always been there when the curtain's gone up. And the thought of not being would be awful. And working with Debbie is just amazing. I love the way she works. She's, I mean, she genuinely made me think differently about myself in the profession. Because she opens doors all the time. And all of a sudden you think, oh, I almost feel like a creative as well as an actor. So that amazing. Extras was just an extraordinary opportunity and opened so many doors. That was lovely. And the Mousetrap was not only a year in the West End and a part of theatre history, meeting my best charm. And that, so that means a huge amount to me. And then also I love Red Dwarf, the moment when you turn up and there they are. Even, you know, you're, you're busy doing it, but nevertheless, you, you clock this extraordinary moment. I mean... Yeah, I've I've been so fortunate, really. Jamie, because you toured with Nativity the Musical, do you enjoy, you know, touring and and being away from home? Well, I enjoy the show. I have to say I'm a terrible home bird, I must say. So, you know, I will always prefer my little flat to, you know, the the Nottingham Travel Lodge. I just will. Not that there's anything wrong with the Nottingham Mm. Travel Lodge, but nevertheless, it's not that. It's the show I enjoy rather than the tour. I mean, I can't help but nest wherever I am. Mm. That is just me. I'm a pathological nester. And so the idea of it being transient and moving on doesn't appeal to me, really. But you get to do this amazing show and share it with audiences. And that's the Pridquo Pro, isn't it? Mm. And do you find audiences in different theatres around the country very different? Yeah, they can be. 
Although if there's too much about this, oh, they're just a dull audience. You think, are you sure you're not giving a dull performance? Are you yeah. sure? I mean, occasionally you can have a quieter one. I mean, to be fair, if you've ever done a Tuesday matinee at the Mousetrap, occasionally that can be challenging. <laughs> to be fair, when you think of not very many people in this particular audience speak English and I've got a lot of verbal gags. So sometimes that can be tricky. But by and large, remember, you can't hear a smile and you think quick and light. And it's the key thing is this. Remember that everyone who's in that house has paid and therefore deserves everything you've got. That's your professional pride. Now, of course, you are not going to skip into a TV studio every day or into a stage door every day shouting hurrah for the holidays. I'm just in the mood for this today. Too bad. Dry your eyes, Chapman, big deep breath and on your pop and give it 100%. And that's them's the rules. And if people don't do that, they're very naughty. Jamie, how has this year been for you with lockdown in March and theatres closing? What has your experience of it been like? Well, I, it's horrid and it's horrid for everybody. So I don't claim that as unique to myself. I loathe that. And I'm the most awful hypochondriac. I mean, I'm terrible. I mean, there's so much of my blood sitting in test tubes in various laboratories in London, because I'm always demanding to be tested for everything. It's amazing there's enough to circulate in my veins. But I, and also, I'm always demanding to be scanned. So this, for me, it was, no, it was no accident that I ended up playing a germaphobe in one of Debbie's films. There's a little bit of that there. I mean, I would gargle with anti-back at the moment if I could. But... Well, what we do is we have to get through it. My grandma, my grandmother, who's such an influence on me and was such an amazing woman, used to say this to me, if ever I was making a fuss too much, she used to say, Jamie, dear, it is not the trenches, which always just meant come along, big deep breath, on. And so that's what I keep saying to myself at the moment. Jamie, dear, it is not the trenches. And the one thing I do feel is that this is a horrendous time, particularly for theatre. But theatre won't die. We will come back from this we will. Theatre can't die. I always say that the Puritans abolished theatre in this country for, I think it was at least a decade, wasn't it, in the 1600s. I can't remember. But it comes back because you can't kill it. The need to tell stories and share stories and to be together when we're entertaining, that's that's important. I'm going to have a little sip of sherry on that note, I think. I'm thinking about lockdown. I think spirit, cheers. You have some cheers. green Harvey's Bristol cream. Oh, it's a little taste of Spanish sunshine. Gorgeous. How do you relax then, Jamie? Because it sounds like you have quite a a creative brain. I can see all the books in the background of the (laughs) shop while we're chatting. Is relaxing something you find easy to do? Yeah, do you know, I'm terribly good at doing nothing. I'm really rather skilled at it. I, I've really got a, a, I've got an ability at it, and I, I put, I don't feel guilty about it. I can have a whole day of doing almost nothing but reading books and drinking tea and maybe having some chocolate, because I, I regard myself as like a battery, and actually you've got to give out a lot of the time and draw on that energy. So therefore, you've got to recharge it, and therefore, actually having a whole recharging day that's really easy for me. I have no guilt about that at all. Few, but but I don't with a book. I don't just read one book. I'll go up to the shelves and my, my little flat is like a library. There are books even around the bed. There are books above every door and up every wall. And so I'll think, now, what do I fancy? I'll have a bit of this, I'll have a bit of that and a bit of that. And I can grasshopper between the two, mm-hmm. between, you know, three books, four books, however many. So I'll have those all sort of there by the armchair. Amazing. And a nice beverage. <laughs> and then get on with it. And um, we haven't spoken yet about the London Speech Workshop. Is that something that you have been able to continue doing throughout lockdown and, you know, via Zoom, as we all seem to be spending lots of time on Zoom? I'm so lucky, really, because such a lucky boy, because we've been doing all our teaching online. So actually, I've been able to just carry on working. Mm-hmm. So there hasn't been, I mean, there have been awful things you see on social media of actor friends who are literally having to sell possessions to stay afloat. I mean, awful 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 and thank god no because of the london speech workshop and a job i really genuinely care about too is i well i've just been carrying on working so Mm -hmm. lockdown from that point of view from work it's been frustrating that we can't do theater and telly only a tiny bit but nevertheless 
we at least I've got that and that's that's been a real help and it's also because you know if you live on your own during lockdown it's actually quite good to know well I've got five hour long meetings mm-hmm. with various clients today you're still socializing albeit through a piece of metal and plastic and electricity and when lockdown happened in March was there a, a project that you were working on or about to work on or a job you were hoping to get that then was well there were sort of things that there were there were some nice little things that were most likely going to come up that then couldn't happen but hopefully will happen next year so fingers crossed about that but yeah and also nativity see would have happened this year was going to go into the Birmingham rep that can't happen but there were other things too and yes there we are but they will still happen in the fullness of time they will nativity's going back into the Birmingham rep in 2021 all things being well fabulous and apart from that is there a dream job what would I like I like the more just looked at the moment to be back doing the job we love would be enough I mean yeah I would always a nice little part in a series would be gorgeous or a nice part in a film or I don't know or I don't know something all I'm feeling all happy again just even (laughs) thinking about it yeah something like that would be lovely I think that would be that would uh, just what the doctor ordered I'd, I'd be well chuffed with that well I'm keeping everything crossed for that to happen ASAP arms legs and eyes so, Jamie, who would you say up to this point has been your biggest influence? Do you know, that's an easy one. My nan. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, my dad buggered off when I was four years old. So I never really knew my dad. Oh. I only saw him very, very sporadically after that. So for me, it was never mum and dad. It was always mum and nan. Mm-hmm. And she was a huge part of my upbringing. I often used to stay with her. And, you know, she died two years ago. And it's just something I would say about grief. It's a funny thing. It, it's not there all the time. At least it wasn't for me. But just occasionally it would suddenly kick you in the solar plexus. And you think, oh, but here's the good bit. I always remember reading somewhere, and I can't remember who said it, but grief is the price we pay for love. If we never loved anyone, we'd never have to grieve. But what I felt with Nan is that she wasn't gone. Because there's barely an hour goes by without me saying something that she would have said, thinking a thought that she already put there, or thinking of her reaction to something I would say. Barely an hour. And that's, that continues to run through your life like a tapestry, like a, like a piece of thread in a tapestry. It, it can't go. So in that sense, you don't lose them. They'll always be there because they're simply a part of you. But yeah, I mean, whenever, you know, you have the party game question, who would you speak to? Anyone dared who you could sit on a park bench with? Her, her, her. I want to chat with her and bring her up to speed on things. That was actor and principal coach at London Speech Workshop, Jamie Chapman. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes from your preferred podcast provider and follow me on Twitter at Shireen Jordan and on Instagram at Shireen R. Jordan.